0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Ryan Mara-Evans, and I'm a student farm manager at the Yale Sustainable Food Program. Joining me in the studio today are Kim and Abhishek Majumdar from the Indian Ensemble. They're in New Haven performing their play Thuk. Thuk is a part of the Hunger for Trade Network, an international theater network that explores problems and issues in the global food market through theater. Thuk addresses these issues through a series of vignettes that revolve around global hunger riots of 2008. Welcome, Kim and Abhishek.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Ryan.
0: Thank you, Ryan. So, um, let's start off with, with the title of the play, Thuk. What is What does the play's title reveal about the themes addressed in the play and the political commentary that the play gets at?
1: Uh, so, Thuk in Hindi and Urdu means spit. And uh, while we were making this play... Uh, We were speaking to theater makers from around the world. And in one of the conferences, we were sitting with some colleagues from Africa. And someone happened to say that uh, in Africa, uh, in Burkina Faso particularly, poverty is not connected to dignity. And we thought that was very revealing because in our country, uh, historically, hunger has been connected to loss of dignity. Uh, people have had to spend a lot of time trying to hide their hunger so that uh, they're not laughed at or they don't have to feel ashamed of it. So we sort of took that metaphor of, you know, food and hunger not just being a problem in itself of basic biological need, but it's also about where you are in the pecking order and hence the name of the play. Yeah,
0: right. Thank you. Um, another theme that I think runs alongside spit in the play is that is that of heaven, right? So the play opens and ends with the same scene. Yeah. Um, it's an interaction with food in yeah. a graveyard, right? Um, why did you choose to make the play return to where it began, and how does that relate to any of the ideas of like spirituality or religiousness that you address in
1: your play? Right. Um, there is a Muslim tradition called e Barat, which is something like the All Souls Day of the Christians. And on e Barat, Muslims go to the graveyard and they feed poor people. It's a way of uh, reconciling or sort of remembering uh, people who are dead. And uh, I think while we were making the play, we were thinking about how uh, mythology and death is such a serious part of our culture. Uh, There are so many mythological stories about death and dying and food, but the food aspect of it is not really foregrounded. And many of those stories are circular in nature. And hence, in a way, in this place, since the food is uh, foregrounded, we wanted to use a similar structure and to come back to this idea that ultimately everybody seeks an ideal life you know, a good life, which is, which is what it can be, it can be going to a a posh hotel for somebody and for someone else, it can be just two meals a day. But everyone has a personal heaven and a personal God that they seek. And that's what, uh, you know, it's not a zero sum game. And I think that's what uh, we wanted to use in the structure of the play.
0: Okay, so could you talk to me a bit more about the writing and the research process of the play, because it was pretty intensive, right? The, the yeah. play that was performed in front of the crowd last night, those were only like individual components that were generated from the research process. Yeah, and yeah. it seems like it was a pretty
1: involved yeah. affair. It was about a two-year process. Uh, this, the Deutsch Schauspielhaus in Hamburg, they commissioned this play with nine companies from around the world. Um, apart from us, there are companies from Africa, Europe, and Latin America. And the idea was to be able to share the research uh, on the subject of trade and hunger, and then use that research to be able to make the pieces that we were making. So a major part of the research was about what are we researching for ourselves, and what part of other people's, other companies' research are we using. So if you watch the play from Royal Exchange in Manchester, you'll find Indian Ensembles' research if you watch our play, you'll find research from Burkina Faso and so on and so forth. So that was one aspect of it. The other thing is we started researching a lot of stuff because it's such a huge subject, hunger and trade, and it's very difficult to point, at one direction, point in one direction. So we divided our research team into interviewing and reading up about people who think about hunger, people who work with food, and people who have been affected by hunger. So we met economists, right to food lobbyists, you know, people such as yourselves who work in you know farms and markets and so on and so forth. Then we worked, interviewed cooks and uh, shopkeepers who are working with food. And then we interviewed a lot of children from uh, rich backgrounds and poor backgrounds, pregnant women, and other people who have experienced hunger either now or in the previous famines in Bengal. And this entire research then came into us and the writers started writing, and we had several workshops over two years. And it's only two weeks before opening the show that we realized that we cannot have a single narrative. It needs to be in vignettes. Uh, because it was just so much material, so in a way, uh, what we have in Thuk is a structure and not a play. So the four stories that are playing at the moment will completely change in two years. We'll have four other things playing based on other research material, and so it's in a way I can say that it's the beginning of our research after two years, and not the end of it. it I think it'll continue.
0: Yeah, Great. And I guess that directs me for a question to you, Kim. How did the interview process or the research process inform your craft? How did it inform your acting?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, see, I uh, have no experience of hunger myself. Like I would have gone without a meal or without three meals a day. But I don't know what chronic hunger is. So while researching about this play, what I found that, you know, when I go out on the streets, I never really know that a person is hungry or not. You can see poor people on the streets, but you don't know they are hungry. There is no connection that we have with people who are really starving. We can say that, you know, they don't have money, they are beggars, they are sleeping on the street, they are homeless. But what hunger means I could only understand that after I started thinking about that there is so much hunger in the world. People are dying because they don't have food to eat. And that is something totally, that was unimaginable to me. But now I really get this sense of, you know, when I see someone on the street who's begging for money, begging for food. Now I really understand what he's feeling
0: right now. Right. So... Another component of the theater piece and the structure is that it is multimedia. Um, Could you talk to me a bit or guide me through why you chose to make it a multimedia form of theater as opposed to something more traditional, and how does that relate or act in conversation with the vignettes and the individual stories? Yeah.
1: uh, You know, it's not a... I've been like with the writers and the actors, working a lot with looking at what are the existing stories about hunger. And if you look at sort of even the European tradition of storytelling, if you look at Hansel and Gretel, you know, Goldilocks and Three Bears, there are like millions of stories about food, but in none of those stories, do we, we don't think of them as stories about food. Food is just a plot. And uh, for us, that was a very big challenge that... Uh, The play, when we talk about hunger, it's a public secret. It's something we had in mind, that everybody knows it, everybody acknowledges it, but we never talk about it. And hence the seating of the plays in Traverse, uh, which has audiences on both sides and the play is played in between, so that we are always aware, we can always look at the other audience that is looking at the play. So we are complicit as an audience, and the hungry are trapped between us. That's that's to do with the design of the basic stage. That That's the thought. We thought of it as a multimedia kind of thing because I thought we just need many, many different forms to tell all the stories. There are so many layers at which the story of hunger uh, lives. There is the documentary uh, layer, which is the most obvious layer the layer of thoughts and opinions and facts and figures, which is very important, just that it's one layer. Then there is the layer of aspiration. Then there is a layer of dreams and imagination. Then there is the layer of music. There is so much music around food and uh, so many rituals and various traditions really about food. And uh, I think through our workshops, as we explored different themes we came up with different forms and mind you almost all the all the forms are borrowed none of none of it is stuff that we have really come up with it's all there in the world we just had to sort of put it together and it formed this kind of a multimedia collage version of the play uh and hence the vignettes right Uh, also uh,
2: also you know when it comes to food in india there is uh this age-long tradition that you know food should stimulate all your senses so you touch food you look at food you smell food you taste food and you also hear food while cooking and while you know chewing it so as as a play if we are able to stimulate all those senses in our audience with different uh, media that that is a purpose that we were attempting to achieve with that right
0: uh, another component of the play is that it's delivered in a mixture of languages there is English there is Hindi there's Urdu um, and the only interaction that the crowd has with that right if they aren't coming from those backgrounds is subtitles could you talk a little bit about how you use language to challenge and engage an American audience
2: yeah so uh In India, we did not have this problem with language because English, Hindi, Urdu forms a part of the colloquial language that is spoken in India, especially with the theater going audience. When we came to America and we decided to use these subtitles, subtitles takes away a certain part of the visual experience. So we've tried to include a lot of English into even our stories. Now, so that, you know, it relates better to an American audience. But more than that, uh, what we've tried here is that uh, to give that sense in a visual way rather than the actual meaning of the words when we are performing it. So uh, what we've tried to do is to, you know, take our expression of the words, the language through our body and through our breath so that it can connect to an audience which does not understand the language.
1: Also there are parts, like the documentary parts are in English even in India, because most of them are verbatim, uh, and people who were interviewed were interviewed in English and they spoke back in English. Uh, India has traditionally been a multilingual society for you know, about 1600 years. the The set of languages has changed, but it's multilingual. So multilingualism is very easy in that sense in India because people switch languages quite without even knowing it. Uh, I guess since English has been an academic language uh, by and large for us, it helps to have the academic stuff in English, but the expression in Hindi or Urdu, uh, it's much easier, I think, for us to express in our native mother tongue.
0: It was a very powerful experience, and there was also I think an element of alienation as a viewer where I was forced to like you know engage with the verb the words on the subtitles as opposed to the actors in front of me, which I right. think aids in the commentary about how we tend to separate ourselves or distance ourselves from the issue of hunger that was very powerful so on the on this issue of like multilingualism, one of the nets features a kind of satirized expression of like Winston Churchill. Um, what are the multiple ways that the play and your know, actors engage with India's history of colonialism? And how central is that
1: to your play? It's uh, Funnily, when we started making the play, we, the first vignette we made was about Vasco da Gama's arrival to India. Because he came twice. Uh, the first time that he arrived, he went back in about eight days. Uh, because he was trying to trade some food for something really cheap, and the king, uh, the Zamorin, who was the king at that time, asked him to leave. Uh, and the next time he came with ships, and, you know, it was the first sort of war fought on at least Indian soil, which started on the in the ocean. Nobody really thought that, you know, the ocean would be used for a war. People assumed that it was a shared thing. So in a way, the colonial experience in India dates back to, I think, uh, almost Vasco da Gama's time. Um, and it is later when we made... So we still have that piece. We, we're not playing it right now because the Churchill piece and the Vasco da Gama piece are becoming very similar. Um, the colonial experience uh, is immense in India. Its, it, it's remnants and its remains... Rema- I mean, it's there. It's there everywhere in the language that we learn in school in what we eat. And it's not, not necessarily a bad thing right now because, I mean, history cannot be denied. It, it exists and we, we, we evolve out of different histories. Um, what is very pertinent to this story is when Adam Smith wrote Wealth of Nations, he particularly wrote about Bengal as a place with wonderful waterways in which capital economy could thrive and about 200 years after that bengal saw uh, its first famine and then it saw a famine four famines during the british rule and they were mostly famines uh, in which food was diverted from bengal to f- you know feed armies or to, to bring back food to england so much so that uh, during the during the famine of 44 which is what we refer to in the play at churchill's time uh, if you just think about this, that an average man's annual consumption of rice was 300 kilos, kilograms, and it went down to 70 kilograms in one year. That's a huge number. And it's not because the rice did not... The paddy field was failed. Uh, you know, The crop succeeded, but it was diverted. And I think that's where the beginning of uh, our, at least our recognition that it's not that a famine, a famine is man-made. The first recognition comes from there. But of course, right now, if we look at it in our politics, we are not colonized anymore in a direct way. But I think there are other kinds of colonization. So most of our food is going to feed cattle. A lot of our food is going to feed cattle in Europe and Japan. is being exported. Although we have people starving in India. And hence, I think the colonial experience is continuing uh, and it hasn't gone away. I don't know if Kim has something to say about the acting of what, what was it for the actors.
2: So what we've been taught in schools about colonialism are not opinions. They are just facts. While referring to the Churchill piece, we have been just taught that, you know, there was a famine in Bengal in 1944 we did not know how this Bengal famine was not a natural calamity, but essentially a manufactured commodity. So it is very, uh, you know, the truth reveals in a very strange fashion when we start researching on the topic. And it's interesting that now, after 70 years almost, uh, this Bengal famine has got a lot of social media attention in india and people are revisiting and there is also this talk about you know changing the way bengal famine has been referred to in our textbooks so that you know we now know how the what exactly caused it and to us as actors it affects us because we did not know this and now in, when we know it evokes certain kind of strange emotions uh, associated with the famine. Because we haven't experienced it, we do not experience anger or we are not hurt. But it's a, it's an emotion of surprise that comes to us because we have been studying about colonial era right through our schooling and even in colleges. But this argument about whether it was good or bad, has never been raised in our textbooks, which on, which can only come when we do some research by ourselves into what we have been taught in schools. So that was something which was very interesting for us as actors.
0: I think another component that your play touches on is that of, like, neocolonialism. And you mentioned that while it may not be direct colonialism anymore, there are indirect, more amorphous, and fluid forms Uh, that, you know, if you could say first world powers interact with those that may still be considered in the third world. In what ways do you find India's cultural and social norms being shaped in the present day by both its colonial legacy and in this, you know, era of global finance?
1: Yeah. I particularly feel that there is no real first world or third world. I think there are conditions of living and life. New York is so similar to Bombay for the rich. And New York is also very similar. The poor of New York are very similar to the poor of Bombay. And I don't think the poor of New York think of themselves as first world citizens uh, or the rich of Bombay think of themselves as third world citizens at all. And I think that is a very big thing in today's world and that shapes uh, countries because this sort of nation state theory of, of uh, existence especially second, post, post the second world war uh, it seems to have only percolated down to those who are not participating in it who are not shaping it so, we believe it in our schools and colleges that we are living in America, we are living in. Uh, but the people who are shaping it, people who are in, in industry, people who are in military, people who are leaders of the world, I don't think they th- even think about the nation state theory. They think about who's going to hold the resources. And it could be a sheikh in Dubai and a very rich governor in America and a rich businessman from Bombay who hold the powers of who hold authority to decide what is going to happen to a large oil well. And they they have nothing to do with nation-state theory at all. So my feeling is uh, that what is shaping India right now is what is shaping China, is what is shaping America, what is shaping the Middle East, which is which side of the line are you on? Are you in the nation-state of the people who are going to control the oil well, or are you in the uh, on the side of the nation state, which is essentially going to believe in all this, you know, nonsense really about you are this and I am from this country and he's from that country and first world, third world kind of things. Um, that's that. That's one major thing. The other major thing is <clears throat> if we sort of do a very simple check you know i was in china last a few few weeks ago if you look read any newspaper from china it will convince you in 10 days that the americans want communism to come back not come back to to sort of be here and if you read five newspapers from america about china it will convince you in 10 days that the chinese are dying to get democracy you know and This is essentially, I'm I'm talking about polar opposites, but this is essentially, I think, the spectrum of the world uh, that there is such a lot of misinformation, planned misinformation that is being pushed to us about the way, about the state our water is in, the state that our food supplies are in, why are people not getting food, what are they doing in these talks, the WTO talks? We've been following the WTO talks very, very intensively for this play. And it's so obvious that the moment they get into their chairs, it is just so much about I have to be a I have to stand in elections in five years. I should not negotiate and lose my strength. It will reflect poorly on me as a leader or on my party. And that's about it. So it's a false construction. Um and I think this false construction is shaping Indian politics and society as much as it is shaping England or america also this thing about
2: neo colonisation so if we go back about a hundred years in India, especially, we knew that <coughs> we are being oppressed by the British. There was a direct enemy that we knew who was taking away our resources. Even in a, in a social structure of India, there was a very prevalent caste system in which, you know, there were lower classes and you were being born into a certain caste, which you cannot help. So if you are born a lower caste uh, person, you don't have any aspiration to become a higher caste. All you can do is revolt and, you know, beat the hell out of your op- oppressor to take whatever resources he's snatching away from you now it's more of a economic stra- uh, strat you know economic classification that is more prevalent and now this dream of this uh, of of you know achieving more if you work harder that you can also move into a higher economic class is being oversold in india there are a lot of rags to riches stories that are being sold to the poor people that you know if you are a hard worker if you apply your mind you will be able to come out of your poverty though that is not true the opportunities are very limited and now poverty is no longer a fault of your oppressor poverty or hunger is your own fault because you are not working hard there are people who have worked hard and you know gotten out of this poverty but it is your fault now so this is what i feel a new way of oppression that has been found by people who have a lot and you know the the poor also have started to believe in it so a revolution is much more difficult now because you know even the oppressed do not believe that their oppressor is oppressing them.
0: Mm. I think what sticks out to me from from those comments is looking at this wave of like neoliberal economic reform that's hit India and also looking at the role that foreign direct investment plays in mm. certain commodities like housing, like water, like food, that people should have a right to and they're getting played with and tossed around like foreign markets. Um, could you speak a little bit then to How your play addresses these issues and I guess how do you view your play as challenging some of these internalized narratives of like oppression or it's my fault if I'm not rich or if I'm not getting access to good clean water or good food.
2: You know there's this story about uh, the commodity trader in our play who is very alienated from the rest of the world and She believes that, you know, whatever way she is, if she works hard and if she's able to trade on a computer screen, she's doing a good thing for herself and she's doing a good thing for the country, though it is not directly mentioned in the play. But that is how a lot of people who are working in the financial sector, or who are working in the IT outsourcing sector in our country feel that you know we are working very hard. We deserve uh, all the riches. We deserve the facilities that an American company coming into India uh, as part of a foreign direct investment, like if a Walmart comes to India, it will be only good for a for the social class in india that is that has a lot of money and they are also the powerful ones because they have the money but they do not understand how it is going to take away jobs from you know these local stores people who survive on very little profits doing their own businesses you know that is a debate that is being that is that is the an idea that is being sold to this aspiring upcoming ma- you know social class in india that is certainly come into a lot of money and people are buying it
1: also i feel that the play since since it's a work in progress really it needs to look at several things which is not looking at right now there are other ways and means of looking at this which will need other stories, which need to come in. I mean, a very important thing which sticks out is this thing that Adam Smith again says in Wealth of Nations where he talks about the invisible hand. He also speaks at one point of time about the invisible fist, which will invariably guide the invisible hand. Um, And I think that's a very important concept, that it's not like the rich are bad and the poor are sweet. It's just not that simple. But it's a matter of what kind of regulation is required in any market to make sure that finite resources do not create an infinitely, you know, a model which has infinite growth for a few. And that does not necessarily, I think, need... Uh, shunning away the market, or shunning away business, or shunning away anything, but it needs regulation, and regulation at an equal term. I mean, India's terms with America for a lot of trade has been ridiculous. Like, if you don't allow us to come in with pharmacy and pharmaceutical, we won't allow uh, software. I mean, there's no, there's no comparison between what is the importance of selling cheap medicine for cancer in India and Africa. To what would it take to make kiosks, which sell theater tickets? Like it's just not the same thing, you know. Uh, but I think that's what needs regulation, and our play needs to look at instances like that, which at the moment uh, we we are not. Yeah.
0: Another one of the markets that I think your play touches on is that of like the commodification of poverty, and how do people from, you know, certain nations go into others and then like take pictures of poverty. And then, you know, frequently bring them back and may or may not make money off of those, like transactions, right? Um, What were the conversations that went on in your cast and in the research process about the commodification of poverty? And what direction did you take the play such that it didn't go into this kind of caricature of poverty or, you know, an insulting or condescending approach to poverty? So, this is
2: something that. I realized after coming to America and it's a very important thing that, you know, poor in India and poor in America, if you look at from a very macro level, are very different. The poor in India can never dream of having a car, can never dream of having a house which she can live for a long time. Clothes. Clothes. Any any resources which are available to a poor person in America are not available to a poor person in India, even worse in sub-Saharan African countries. But it is not really about how many absolute resources a person has. It is about how the limited number of resources that are available in a certain geographic area are divided amongst the people.
1: I so think the question is more about image making, isn't it? Yeah, it's about You're image making about and image visual making. representations. Right.
0: Visual
2: representation. So, so like an American would look at a poor Indian, an image of a poor Indian. Even a poor American would look at that image and say that this guy does not have resources. Same way, if an Indian poor would look at an African poor, it would to him, you know, appear that the African poor has much less than what an Indian poor has. But that is not necessarily true. Right. So, uh, what you asked is that how we sort of took care of how we do not sell this image of poverty through our play. So, Uh, A big uh, thing there was uh, in our story about Africa and how an Indian treats an African there is um, so we had this problem of caricaturization earlier and Mm -hmm. we went through a lot of different versions of that particular story to remove that that nothing should go into the play in a bad that would appear to be in a bad taste that would make the audience cringe in a way that you know they feel that you are doing something that is
1: not good yeah also there was a lot it i mean i think your question is very very important you know about the aesthetics of poverty and we had to filter a lot a lot for ourselves uh because we are also brought up on the usual pictures you know the usual five pictures of the african child the indian tribal woman and you know like the four or five pictures that exist and of course this research uh in had to be as much about knowing as it was about seeing how does a person live mm, there are some some very important things which came up you know in terms of how it loo- how is how is it going to look uh, when i was doing the scenography of the play I was thinking of, what are the colors that you see in an Indian poor home right now? And it's really bright. It's not dull, because if you're urban poor, you have products. You may not have food, but you may have a really cheap cell phone. You may not have milk to drink, but you might have uh, coke in, you know, a big bottle of coke, which has been found somewhere, because these are all symbols of aspiration. And I think we are at a moment in history almost, where the aesthetics of poverty uh, where poverty is beginning to look colourful You know, as opposed to it looking barren because the poor have been dumped with a lot of colourful products. It's really much cheaper today in India to buy a bottle of Pepsi than to buy a carton of milk. And you can automatically see where, you know, the color would come from, and it it, it was a struggle. Um, and I think with every new story, we will have to make sure that we f- remove our first four ideas of how is it going to look. Yeah. yeah.
0: Right, and then I guess we can we can wrap things up with this question. A lot of the issues that you address in the play seem to be issues of, like, policy and seem to be issues of, like, global finance. What role do you see art, and specifically theatre, playing in challenging some of these larger issues? Is the intent of your play to educate, to inspire action, or to entertain? Could you... Uh,
1: um, Firstly, I think theatre in general is like going to a good university, you know, where a student is entertained by what they listen to, what they want to learn, and it, it also challenges their mind. I think it's not either or. Either or. Um, I'm not sure if theatre is capable of bringing about a change, personally. I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. But I think it can start conversations, which needs a lot of other things to bring about the change. But it can start the conversation. And we have seen that happen with this play at a certain moment. Um, there is still, a, this, this play right now is very technical intensive. You know, It needs a lot of stuff, which is a bit ironical because it's a play about less and it, it needs a lot of stuff at the moment. So we are creating a version of the play which needs much lesser and we are going to tour that in government schools and colleges and in India in various parts of India. And that, I think, is really going to tell us if the play is worth it. And if it doesn't work there, then we should just close the play. Then it has no meaning, really, because we are talking, we are preaching to the converted. It has, you know, I mean, it's very easy to sit in a sort of, you know, middle-class, liberal, left-wing, sort of, you know, liberal-thinking uh, audience anywhere in the world and talk about food and poverty and everybody goes out and has a couple of drinks and has organic food and goes back really charged up i mean that's easy and that's what we're doing right now uh but i think our real test is in the other places
2: yeah i think uh, what abhishek said is is absolutely bang on the purpose of this play would be to spark a debate you know about hunger which and poverty which we don't necessarily witness in the kind of audience that goes to a theater to watch a play in india and, and or these anywhere are, yeah i can talk <laughs> about india because <laughs> i've seen there and and these are the people who who have a certain influence which can shape the policy of of india so i mean yeah so that is so, it's, the idea is just about starting a conversation and starting a debate so that this matter of hunger and poverty is not overlooked when you go about your business
1: in your day to day life.
0: All right. And um, with that, I thank you both, Abhishek and Kim, for joining
1: me today for
0: this great conversation.
1: Thank you, Ryan. Thank, thank you very Ryan. much. Thanks a lot. Thank you for your time.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu/sustainablefood.